0: Well, it's always a joy to stand behind this sacred desk and preach the Word of God. Pastor Charles was scheduled to actually preach this evening, but he's been battling some cold issues and, um, and pretty much lost his voice after preaching this morning. So anyway, I'm glad to be here. Love you folks. Love this church. So thankful to be able to preach the Word of God. I invite you to open your Bible and read along with me to Galatians chapter 4. I started a series of messages this morning at our church back in Columbia. And over these next few Sundays, I've entitled the series, In the Fullness of Time, so looking at Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, reading all, through, all the way to verse 11. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are, God, that you allow us to assemble here in this meeting place as your church. We belong to you, the body of Christ. You're the head of your church. You're building your church. You have empowered your church, and you said that you would advance your church, and not only the gates of hell would be able to prevail against it. God, it's my heartfelt prayer this evening that in my humanity and in my frailness, God, that you would simply, again, grace me with the power of your Holy Spirit to preach this word to your people. And God, I pray and thank you that you would indeed give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are receptive to your truth. All this we pray to the glory and the honor of your Son Christ. Amen. I'm sure you've read the epistle to the church in Galatia or the churches. There's six chapters in this epistle. It perhaps is probably speaking for myself, my most favorite epistle that Paul wrote. And the reason why, for me, it's my favorite is because he just cuts right to the chase. He's not here to try to appease anyone or accommodate anyone or to make anybody feel good about themselves, but he deals with the issue of how you come to understand the true nature of saving faith and what it means to be a person that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just going back and just briefly giving you a little bit of history as to what was going on when Paul wrote this letter. The Galatians, having begun their Christian experience by faith, they actually seem now to be content and satisfied to depart from their pilgrimage of faith that Paul so powerfully taught them, and they begin to chart a new course based on works on works, a course that the Apostle Paul found very, very disturbing. Actually, you can't read this epistle without actually seeing Paul's anger about it. For example, when you look at chapter 1, verse 6, what did he say? I'm amazed. It's like he's shocked. He's amazed that you have that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ, but yet for a different gospel. Then in verse 7 of Galatians 1, he says, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul did not mix his words. If he saw individuals... That were not teaching the gospel that he said that he was not ashamed of in Romans, six, Romans 16, that he preached was the power of God unto salvation. It is indeed an exclusive gospel. In reality, there's no other gospel than the exclusive gospel of Christ. There's no other Savior except for the exclusively, exclusively that being Christ. And when anything would be presented to anyone where especially he planted a church and taught them what the true nature of saving faith was all about, he was quick, quick to deal with it aggressively and bring a strong word of correction to people that would depart from the faith they once heard and begin to substitute something else for that, when in reality, he knew it was wrong, and he was going to again inform them as to what it was, and basically set the record straight. So the way the apostle Paul was again, he was shocked. The word amaze implies literally like shocked that they were so quickly deserting him who called them by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now notice he says the calling there was not anything that he did or any other person, but the call was completely the act, the sovereign work, the sovereign act of God initiating their salvation, Jesus Christ validating their salvation, and the Holy Spirit indeed activating their salvation which is to say they had nothing to do with it they had nothing to do with it and then when paul clearly says for a different gospel he quickly says but there's really no other gospel there's not really a different gospel there's not another but only that some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ." is exactly what was happening. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment in regards to what he was actually saying. But when you carry on this thought about, again, Paul's frustration and even some degree of having a righteous indignation about what was happening, this is what he said to him as well in Galatians 3 verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified and then in verse two he says this is the only thing I want to learn from you and I can just imagine how he was looking at this he's looking at look folks this is the only thing I want to hear from you this is the only thing I want to learn from you did you receive the spirit talking about the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing faith. And then he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you saying, and again, this is what I want to learn from you. You're saying that You began understanding what we preached. This wonderful saving faith was initiated by God, validated by Christ, activated by the Holy Spirit. It was all the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating you so that you could believe and you would receive the gift of faith. That in hearing the word of Christ, that faith would come and that faith would be by believing what was true about Christ but now you're saying you begun that way, but now you're going to finish this in your flesh. In other words, you have the ability, you have the strength in your flesh, in yourself to finish what only God started and what only God can complete, but you think you're clever enough, you've got it together, you're smart enough that you can finish this without the work of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, you're foolish you've been bewitched you've been conned to believe something that is not the truth the Bible makes it very clear one scripture particularly Philippians 1 6 I know you know what it says I remember back when Pastor Mark preached through Philippians I remember when he dealt with this text Saying, being confident of this very thing, that he that began the work and you will complete it until Jesus Christ comes. He didn't say he that began the work, and then you will take over that work in your flesh, in your own strength, and it will be completed. That's not what he said. If it began by God and it was initiated by God, and it was validated through the work of Christ on the cross, and it's activated by the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing other than making sure that you obey the truth concerning that. So back here in this text again in Galatians 3, that's expressing again how actually disturbing... Paul found it to be that when you look again at that text in Galatians 3, 1 through 3, this refers to not, a, not really a lack of intelligence when he calls them foolish. It's not what he's saying, but it's really a lack of obedience to the truth. Foolish there is actually a word that when it came to the Galatian believers, this was especially foolish Because they sat under the teaching and the ministry of Paul. Out of all the apostles, all that they taught and everything, you know as well as I know if there was any one man that was passionate about communicating the gospel, the charisma, the truth, the gospel concerning Christ, it was the apostle Paul. And these folks sat under that ministry. They heard him teach. They heard him teach what the true nature of saving faith was all about. And the reason why these folks are especially foolish is because they had been so carefully and fully taught, especially sitting under the teaching, as I said, of the Apostle Paul. Carrying the thought of that word foolish father... It is to say that it didn't imply there was actually a mental deficiency among the Galatians here. But more so, maybe, as John MacArthur says, and I quote, a mental laziness. A just write out, out carelessness. The believers in Galatia were not stupid. They simply failed to use their spiritual intelligence. When faced by the unscriptural gospel-destroying and distorting teachers of the Judaizers, the false teachers, simply putting it, they were not using their heads. They were acting senseless and thoughtless. The Galatians had foolishly regressed into Judaistic legalism because they had stopped believing and applying the basic truths of the gospel that Paul had taught them. And by that truth, they were saved. And then again, notice, he says, but who's bewitched you? Who's conned you? They were bewitched, that is the Galatians here, in this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, They were bewitched by the false teachers, the Judaizers. Bewitched, there is a word that actually means to charm or to fascinate in a misleading way. As by flattery or false promises and just putting it in a way that we could understand it, it's a con job. Now folks, I don't want to get on a rabbit trail here this evening. But if you have any degree of biblical discernment, it is not hard to see that a lot of what comes across the airways on TV and other outlets where supposedly the gospel is being preached, it is a bewitching gospel. It's a con job. It is nothing more than false promises and flattery. I went back recently. I don't like to pick on Joel Osteen, but thank God for the word but. It's a conjunction. It means keep on reading. we got something else to say or hear. But I never forget the first time he did a sit-down interview with Larry King live. Right after he wrote his most popular best-selling book entitled You Can Have Your Best Life Now. Now if you've ever seen the book, I've thumbed through it. I was curious. I admitted I thumbed through it. I read some of it. It's interesting that if there's any text of scripture mentioned, it's always at the end of the book. It's not incorporated in the actual reading of the book. There might be something that said that would that would be maybe a good a good uh, uh, bringing a scripture into it, trying to fit the scripture into something you want it to mean in regards to what you're saying about a person when it comes to their their self-esteem or their self-worth or their self-confidence or their self-love. So again, Larry King's actually interviewing him. Long story short, he gets to the part where he says, well, Reverend Joel, he says, you believe that that if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to go to hell. This is what he does. Well, 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 I'm not anybody's judge. I leave that up to God. And I'm thinking, Joel, don't do this. You've got millions of people watching you people by the thousands would watch Larry King live. Here it is. You've got a platform. Stand up for Christ. Stand up for the exclusivity of the gospel. Stand up for the exclusivity of Christ. Let people know that if you don't trust Christ and come to realize the true nature of saving faith, you will die, you will go into eternity, you will be judged by God, you will become victim of His wrath, and that, vic- that wrath and that, that, that actual judgment will be hell. Tell people there's a hell to shun, but there's a heaven to gain. Do it, Joel, but he never did. Never did. Never did. I think it surprised Larry King. John MacArthur's been on that program many times and never waffled on that truth. All that Larry King would say, well, John MacArthur, you say that Jesus Christ is the only way. I, he says, no, I didn't say it. Jesus said it, and I believe what he said. And John MacArthur would say, yeah, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth of the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And Larry King goes and said, next call. <laughs> he just moved right on. Folks listen that's a bewitching. That's a con job. When you say that you're called to preach the gospel, but you are taking it upon yourself to delete or erase the imperatives of the gospel and take it upon yourself and a place that you're on TV around the world, and you call yourself a preacher, and you do not stand for the gospel of Christ. Here is really what's taking place. These false teachers, these Judaizers were coming and said, you know what, you can still you know, do your Jesus thing, but we're telling you, you're not going to make it if you don't get circumcised, and if you don't go through the rituals and go through the ceremonies, maintain the dietary laws, recognize all the festivities, all the feast days, and all that kind of stuff, Paul says you're foolish. Who's bewitched you? The Galatians' own experience of being saved, that is their very salvation, should have stopped them, should have stopped them from falling for the false teaching of the Judaizers. The Galatians saw clearly the meaning of the cross. The gospel had come to them with the full clarity and power of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, and by faith they had believed and embraced and received the salvation truth. But some were defecting. Some were deserting. When Paul used that phrase here in the New American Standard English translation, publicly portrayed... That's really a word that was used of posting important official notices on placards in the marketplace or the square or other public locations for citizens to read. That's what that was. Jesus had been figuratively placarded before the Galatians by Paul himself For everyone to see in a clear and precise way. You know, I know that Paul covered all the bases. I mean, every doctrine, soteriology, Christology, ecclesiology, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of God's aseity, everything's right here in this epistle. They heard it with their own minds. It is to say that Paul's preaching of Jesus and the Galatians' acceptance of him was all done publicly, publicly. Jesus had figuratively placarded before the Galatians, that is Paul himself, for everyone to see in a clear and precise way the truth of the true nature of saving faith Christ, his work, his meritorious work of the cross, period, sola, alone, by grace, through faith in Christ alone you're saved, adding nothing, taking nothing away. Then he said the word crucified. Crucified there translates a perfect passive participle, meaning that the crucifixion was a historical fact that had continuing results. So essentially here, we see that really what Paul had done, the realities of what he had taught and brought to bear upon those who were so quickly deserting the truth of the gospel for another gospel, those who had disturbed them and distorted that truth, what really lies behind this letter is simply this. Paul's message comes from God on the basis of faith, not the law. He makes that clear. He makes it clear that the law declares men guilty and the law imprisons them. The law could never save you. All that the law could ever do was expose you. And Paul made that very clear. Paul also brought out in this letter that faith sets men free to enjoy liberty in Christ. What did he tell them again? In chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, or because of that, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery, trying your best to attempt to gain some kind of approval and some kind of favor from God on your own by going back to what you were and leaving the truth alone of what Christ provided to all those who would indeed believe. And the last thing Paul made very clear is that freedom in Christ means freedom to reduce the fruits of righteousness through a spirit-led lifestyle. And then, of course, Galatians 6.15, Paul said, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man or any person be in Christ, what are they? A new creation. You're something that's never existed before. You're a new creation. Old things are passed away. And all things are new. So back to that text we read in Galatians 4. Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came. What does that word fullness mean? Well, it means that which fills up. A filling up. Completed. Completely. Fulfillment is what it means. When it says, When the fullness of the time came, time there in the Greek is not kairos, but it's chronos. Chronos is where we get our English word chronology. It's time as we know it. Time that is measured by seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, and years. Actually, the very time that God created. God's eternal He's always been, he always will be, but the time that we know and we understand, and it's really hard to understand and comprehend, eternity. I mean, you can look up that word in most any English dictionary, and the word eternal or the word eternity simply means that it has no beginning, it has no end. I mean, I've got this big head, but i got this peanut brain. I just can't wrap my peanut brain around that. We're used to seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years. But we're talking about something that had no beginning and it has no end. But now we see that there's a time that God created that we know. And that's what he's talking about here. But when the fullness of the time, time as we know it came, this could actually be viewed as... When the time comes to completion or when the right time comes or when the time arrived that was set by God. And better yet, I think probably in the most simplest of terms, it would imply simply this. In God's plan, the proper time had fully come. The proper time had fully come. So the fullness of time refers to here the completion of the period of preparation in God's sovereign timetable of redemption. I heard a definition given by a preacher recently that I thought was so good, I'd never thought about it. Well, I have thought about it this way, but was not able to articulate or put it in these kind of words, but he did, and I thought this was so good. He says sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God refers to his unhindered and absolute control over all that he has made. Unhindered. Absolute control over everything he's made. Time as we know it. He's in control of that. Your seconds, your minutes, your hours. Listen, your days have been numbered. Every one of us are born with an expiration date. Job said in Job chapter 14, I will not pass my appointed time, my allotment. Not a month, not a year, not a day. God knows my days. My days are in His hands. Support a man wants to die and then the judgment. So I think we get that. We understand that. But when, again, the law had fully achieved its purpose Are revealing to man his complete sinfulness and his inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. It was then that God ushered in in the fullness of time, became a new era of redemption. God provided the perfect righteousness that man needed, that man could not provide for himself. And how did he do it? He sent his son. Now isn't it interesting that Paul is issuing a strong rebuke and a strong correction to this church, but he never failed to always bring it back to the gospel. Always back to Christ. I mean, I'm sure they knew that Christ came. I'm sure they knew the the scriptures that probably Paul had shared with them in Isaiah, like what Pastor Mark read there in chapter 9. But yet, for the purpose of instruction, Paul never relented. He never backed off. He never vacillated to always bringing it back to Christ. What Christ did, what he accomplished, how God, in the proper time, in the fullness of time, in God's plan, the proper time had fully come. And Paul was reminding them that's why you're saved. That's why you belong to God. God sent his son. Isn't that the essence of Christmas? I mean, when you think about Christmas, you think about the glory of God. You think about the glory of God. You think about the person, the power, in the presence of God. When you think about the incarnation, you're reminded that God became something he had never been without seeking to be what he always had been. God came in in humanity, in flesh, and took up residence among us, according to John one fourteen, He sent His Son. He was in total, complete control of all of that. But I've got a question as I need to move on. Did Charles Wesley miss something when he penned these lyrics in Hark! The Herald Angels Sing when he wrote, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Late in time? Jesus came late? Was Jesus late? No. In God's plan, the proper time... When he had fully come, God sent his Son. Charles Wesley did not mean Jesus came at the wrong time. That's not what he meant. The people of God had been hoping for his coming ever since the divine announcement of his coming, which is the very first messianic prophecy of the coming of Christ found in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, you know what it says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. After cursing the physical serpent, this is a quote of John MacArthur. God turned to the spiritual serpent the lying seducer, Satan, and cursed him. Cursed him. He said, again, here, God, in Genesis 3.15, He's going to bruise your head, and it's going to bruise His heel. It is to say that the first gospel is prophetic of the struggle... And his outcome between your seed, Satan and unbelievers, who are called the devil's children, and John eight forty four, are her seed, which is Christ, a descendant of Eve, and those in Him, which began in the garden, in the midst of the course, the curse passage, the curse passage, a message of hope shown. Forth it shone forth The woman's offspring called he is Christ Christ He will come and his victory is sure. It must have seemed very long, though, for all those that knew that prophetic. Promise of the coming Messiah. There are times in the Old Testament we heard the people say, Lord, how long will it be? How long will it be? Years went by. And it must have seemed a very long time. But I love the hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that makes mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from, from the depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from the roots will bear fruit. Did you know that Matthew 1 says that Christ's direct descendants were David and Abraham? Jesse here is David's father, and the branch here that bears the fruit Is Christ. The Lord may seem slow. But. As a one dear black pastor friend in Florence called Albert Epps. He says God is always on time. He is never late. That's clearly seen here in Galatians 4. Verse 4. In the fullness of time. God sent his son all in His timing, all in His work. I think I'm going to have another possibility of preaching this message because I just got through with the introduction. I will say this in closing. Our time is moving quickly. Let me just say this. There's a word that is used in many Ways as describing the coming of Christ by calling it the advent. It's interesting that the word advent is derived from the Latin word adventus. Adventus. And it actually means coming. Coming. Which is a translation of the Greek word parousia, which is a word that means a being present, a coming to a place, or an arrival. Technical, In the technical term, or a technical term used of the coming of Christ, is really what Advent implies. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? Obviously, he came in obedience to the will of the Father. He made that clear especially in John 17. It was God's plan that only Jesus would come for Him and die for Him and propitiate satisfy His anger against sinful man. It would be Christ. That we would be recipients of that salvation through faith in Christ. But the Bible makes it very clear in one text among many. But this one... Specifically tells us why he came. Luke 19:10. For the Son of Man. And the Son of Man was probably used more of Christ to describe himself than any other thing. Which again is used in a way that yet fully God, but yet fully man. Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. There you have it. Folks, ultimately, that's the passion of this church. That God would use this church to save His elect. They've got to hear the truth. They've got to hear the gospel. And Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. The purpose in mind? And this is essentially the incarnation. What is it? God became something He'd never been without ceasing to be what He'd always been. That's clearly seen in John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what, Lord willing, I hope to be able to share with you maybe sometime this month, that what is characteristic of what Paul is saying Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time God sent His Son is to realize what is characteristic of the Incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. One is the fullness of God is seen in human flesh. His glory was seen completely. Grace is realized thoroughly. And absolute truth is revealed entirely. And Lord willing, we'll finish that the next time. Amen. Well, as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, certainly our go-to text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where again the Apostle Paul says, For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We know clearly that this sacrament is for the believer. And we know that we're supposed to enter into this in a, in a worthy manner, but not anything that's based on our worth. Our worth only comes from Christ who alone again died in our place the worthy one the perfect one the sinless one who took our sin upon himself to provide redemption and forgiveness and to give us the imputed gift of perfect righteousness that comes from him in our souls so I would encourage you now, let's bow our heads just for a moment and let's again go to the Lord as we remember the shedding of His blood and the breaking of His body that if there be anything in our heart we need to repent of. Ask God to forgive us of. Let us, let us examine our hearts and in doing so we will eat and, of the bread and drink of the cup you would right now pray to the Lord.